Today's guest says that the disorientation of grief is itself a chronic condition, an altered state where a mind is strained to find order in a jumble of unfamiliar events. We'll find out more about this in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Dr. Lisa Shulman. She is a professor of neurology at the University of Maryland, and she is the author of Before and After Loss, a neurologist's perspective on loss, grief, and our brain. Hello, Dr. Shulman. How are you? Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Dr. Shulman, you have written uh, a book that really documents your own personal journey um, with your husband and all that the two of you went through uh, as he was dying. And then you go on to give us some very concrete information about just how the brain changes and can reconstitute after suffering from a loss. What was it like for you writing this book? Well, you know, the process was very organic. It wasn't uh, thought through from the start. Instead, it uh, what is in the book about my experience is most of that's been written in real time and was written for the purpose of uh, me uh, working through and trying to figure out how I was going to get through this difficult time after uh, my husband's death. Uh, and, and at some point, uh, it became clear that this wasn't going to be uh, a short or easy process. And to work through my own uh, emotional trauma and grief, I began to do research from my perspective as a neurologist on how all of this was affecting the brain because I could see over time, not in the beginning when I was just truly stunned, uh, and that went on for many months, but later on I began to actually uh, begin to view my own um, experience of uh, loss uh, from the perspective of a neurologist as something that was a whole range of neurologic problems and impairments that, as a neurologist, we call altered mental status. Ultimately, all of that research uh, was something that I began to uh, realize was the basis for a book because I thought, if I was unaware of what this experience of loss and emotional trauma was going to be like, there must be many other people in my shoes since uh, I was counseling people going through serious neurologic conditions for decades. You know, I I noticed that you um, just said that it it took you several months as you were going through your healing process. And, And I think about for folks who are employed in traditional, um, you know, sort of nine-to-five jobs, that very often they have maybe a couple of weeks uh, that their employers grant them. Many people believe that they have to end their grieving process at, 
you know, X number of weeks or months, many of the people who care about people who are grieving have the same belief system. But one of the things that you say, again, very early in before and after loss is that while we are united by the experience of loss, our losses are different in their sources of comfort and support. Can you say more about the anticipated time frame, if you will, that one quote unquote should be open quote over it, close quote? Uh, sure. You know, um, from my perspective as somebody who went through this experience and um, the other side where I am a, a clinician uh, and understand the perspective of uh, other uh, health professionals, I, I, I think that there is a miscon- misconception and culturally a misconception about the time course uh, after emotional trauma. And that, uh, you know, I, I would not be uh, as judgmental uh, as I think many of the criteria uh, that are used in terms of proper stages uh, and um, progress and expectations. And, and I think those um, actual cultural and societal expectations, you know, can oftentimes put an, an additional burden on the person going through this because they're, they're thinking that they need to measure up uh, to what they've heard from others rather than being mindful about the level um, and personal meaning of this loss in their life and uh, an expected period that could go on for a long time and I would say uh, really goes on for the rest of our lives but that we uh, are emotionally restored and we're able to integrate it into our life story the what would you say to uh employers who are listening who have a very narrow view of an uh, appropriate uh time frame for uh a, a worker being out of work or uh before they are able to fully resume their levels of productivity Well, you know, you're bringing up a very important point because uh, one of the things that uh, I explore in in the book is uh, how incredible it is that the brain is um, is, uh, hardwired to help us function uh, fairly normally, uh, even in the face of so much um, emotional instability. Uh, And this... uh, I believe is is really an evolutionary adaptation of the brain uh, because you know just imagine if uh, when uh, as a species when we experienced emotional trauma of all types if we were unable to function and survive so uh, you know one of the interesting things is I think most people uh, based on my own experience and speaking to others and reading other uh, literature on this is that most people are able to function. Uh, and, uh, and this is because the brain uh, is incredibly able to um, suppress the very difficult, disturbing emotions and filter this stuff out so that we can uh, concentrate and do what we normally would do. Uh, I'm sure that isn't true in every case, but in most cases that is true. I think it does, however, however, also raise the issue that you're um, describing, which is that 
it can be very difficult to um, manage in the workplace from the standpoint that uh, it's not clear uh, how much of vulnerability uh, will be uh, tolerated in the workplace and even possibly um, have you lose opportunities for the future if you're looking too vulnerable uh, during this period. So it is, on the one hand, I think from the standpoint of the person experiencing loss, it's an additional burden of wanting to appear um, strong and, and competent. And I think from the employer's standpoint, it's, it is a um, challenge to know what is the right approach. You um, say, and, and now I'm quoting um, from before and after loss, from a neurologic perspective, traumatic memories create their own neural pathways. Certain triggers activate brain pathways associated with anxiety and even a fight or flight response. And again, I, 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 it's not clear to me that we tend to have an understanding that the brain can actually be changed as a result of a traumatic experience? There's no question that um, the emotional trauma uh, of loss uh, does alter our brain and and even um, mind and body functions. And there's a tremendous amount of work and research that's gone on for many years uh, in terms of both acute and chronic stress. Uh, and, and loss is a chronic stress, uh, and, and amongst the most severe chronic stresses, certain losses. So uh, as you were just saying, uh, the brain uh, has both um, acute and chronic responses, meaning that uh, in a more immediate way, when we immediately are... Uh, confronted by uh, a threat, that does evoke and trigger uh, a classic fight-or-flight response. And, you know, one example of that would be, uh, you know, not only in daily life, you know, if you were hiking, you saw a bear, the the classic example, but if you were uh, following loss, if you uh, see a photo or um, go to a certain place that evokes certain memories, it could uh, result in a, a feeling of not only anxiety, but even panic. Dr. Shulman, we're going to take a break, but when we continue, um, we will continue with our conversation about before and after loss. Don't go away, folks. You're listening to Mind Talk. We'll be right back. Dr. Shulman, you talk about complicated grief. What is complicated grief? Well, it's it's actually a psychiatric term, uh, and it refers to grief that is more intense, the symptoms are more intense, and that it goes on for more than six months. It's also known as prolonged grief. But I think it's um, in the category of what I was mentioning before from the standpoint that 
um, it is important, you know, for health professionals and researchers to have ways to categorize um, conditions, uh, health conditions. But by the same token, I, I don't find it useful from the standpoint of the person experiencing this because we need to be mindful of our own symptoms but not judge ourselves harshly if we don't measure up to some sort of uh, what is, in fact, an artificial timeline. I, I, I think it's so critical um, to recognize that so many of these um, expectations uh, that are imposed really are artificial timelines that, that may not have a lot to do with the individual and his or her own grieving and healing process. Another uh, comment that you make, which I think is so important, uh, and actually caused me to pause for a moment, um, was when you said that uh, complicated grief and post-traumatic stress disorder um, are closely linked. Can you say more about that? Well, you know, I mean, the these sorts of categories, um, again, uh, they have were created by um, professionals and experts and committees. Um, but when you come right down to it, and you instead approach it from the perspective of not only the uh, symptoms, the experience, and the mechanisms in the brain, uh, you are left where. I believe, you know, I uh, concluded that these are the same things uh, because, uh, you know, for example, uh, in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, we talk about how people have these um, continued uh, disturbing memories, uh, difficulties with sleep, uh, difficulty with hypervigilance and intrusive memories during the day, uh, tendency to respond to triggers with, with flashbacks. Well, every single part of that is uh, as true for um, traumatic loss. Uh, so, you know, for example, you know, following traumatic loss, people uh, do have disturbed sleep, uh, oftentimes have um, disturbing dreams uh, tend to become fearful. The fear center of the brain in the amygdala is uh, uh, continues on high alert uh, and uh, have this responsiveness to triggers as well. You actually talked about your own experiences after the loss of Bill and the dreams that you had and the sort of automatic pilot ways in which you would uh, go through some experiences and parts of your day, which I think, again, is so p important because we, just as a society, often tend to put um, more judgment than compassion on the various experiences that we have. You know, the, the chapter on dreams was uh, something that uh, came about later in the process of writing the book. I actually was keeping the dream journal, um, but hadn't originally thought it was going to be part of the book. Uh, and then when I learned about the brain's uh, ability to suppress uh, difficult 
and disturbing emotions and memories and filter these kinds of memories so that and the brain amazingly understands the threshold of what we can and we can't handle uh, all sorts of memories that would be ordinarily consolidated in our sleep that is where these memories are uh, filed away in a uh, you can imagine a, a good analogy of a huge file a filing system of the brain uh, things that are super uh, disturbing cannot be filed away in, in that regard and they continue to uh, just sit there in the subconscious and that gives rise to more frequent and more disturbing dreams uh, after uh, tr emotional trauma. Once I learned that, I sort of went back to my dream journal and thought, well, okay, here is the material that looks completely uh, strange to me, but is, uh, are, is symbols, were symbols of the things that were most difficult for me uh, during uh, my loss. Uh, and that gave rise to the, the dream chapter. You talk a lot about the value of journaling, um, really as something that uh, can help you, can be restorative, but also helps in the healing of your brain. Can you talk about the value of journaling? You know, a, a very hopeful and important message um, from researching the effects of loss and trauma on the brain uh, was that these, uh, this knowledge informs what we can do to help ourselves. And uh, what's really important is finding ways to reconnect with that disturbing, those disturbing emotions and memories I was just referring to. Journaling is an excellent way to do that, and for me, ended up being um, the most uh, healing and therapeutic uh, approach. And the reason why uh, journaling, there are many reasons why journaling is so effective. I mean, for one thing, uh, when you have a lot of um, uh, disturbing emotions and memories just rolling around in your mind and causing all sorts of ruminations during the day, uh, it just simply helps to get those things out in black and white on a page. Because instead of being amorphous and overwhelming, it becomes concrete. In addition, you know, no matter who we speak to, it could be our friends, our dear friends, it could be a therapist, a support group, we always feel a need to edit or filter what we're saying to some extent, knowing of the people we're speaking to. But when you are journaling, you're writing only for yourself. So you can try to be as raw as possible, and that is a very uh, healing process. Finally, the opportunity to go back and read your own words uh, days later, months later, or even years later has incredible uh, therapeutic uh, effects. You uh, talk about the the uh, experience of dissociation, uh, and you reference a study of people 
with complicated grief. And so often, certainly as clinicians, dissociation, uh, we don't think of it as a good thing. But in fact, you're saying that uh, dissociation was uh, connected with a better response uh, to, po- to, to psychotherapeutic treatment, the presence of dissociation. Talk about the value. Uh, well, first of all, if you would just very briefly explain what dissociation is and then talk about the value of it for the person who's grieving. Right. Uh, dissociation is a, is a fairly common um, defense mechanism when um, we are overwhelmed by our own uh, by our own experience, such as a severe um, emotional trauma, traumatic loss, uh, and uh, this is referring to uh, what I mentioned before about how the the brain uh, senses what threshold of um, painful memories we can handle and protects us from things we're not ready to handle. The result of that is that at times um, we may find ourselves having um, moments where we become unaware uh, of our surroundings because the environmental stimuli are uh, so emotionally overwhelming. Uh, But actually, we are rarely aware of it. And instead, it gives rise to a sense of um, a fog, like a fog of confusion. People who are going through loss frequently talk about that they feel like they're in a fog and frequently talk about uh, that they don't recall periods from around the period of trauma. And that is usually related to dissociation. You know, as as you were mentioning about that um, study, uh, the point of it is that this is a normal, natural adaptive process of the brain and it's signaling that there are this these painful uh, emotional uh, memories disturbing stuff that is still not worked through but we can use pro- approaches as we were just talking about journaling being one of them in order to reconnect with that and from that standpoint it shows a road uh, that we can take for healing. Dr. Schulman, we're going to take a break and we will be back in just a moment. Folks, you are listening to Mind Talk and I'm having a conversation with Dr. Lisa Schulman, author of Before and After Loss, a neurologist's perspective on loss, grief, and our brain. Dr. Shulman, there are so many experiences that you talk about having had personally, which so many people, when they have them or if they have them, really start to wonder what's wrong with them. 
uh, dreaming about um, a loved one, uh, thinking that you perhaps hear a loved one's voice, uh, losing time, as you've described, losing awareness uh, for a moment. One of the things that I, I think is so helpful about this uh, book, and certainly there are many, is, is your personal story and just letting people know that it's, it's kind of okay to be human. Well, you know, I, I, I try to be very uh, genuine about um, what this experience is like uh, because, uh, just as you said, uh, it's a common experience, and uh, I also um, experienced the sense uh, that maybe I was going crazy and that um, there was something wrong with me in how um, I was responding to uh, this loss. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, that there is value, and I hope that uh, this book helps people to normalize this experience. And I, what I mean by that is that to understand that uh, serious emotional trauma uh, results in these experiences, and that is the normal healing process. Nothing to um, in any way feel uh, should be stigmatized or... Uh, one should be uh, concerned about their own progress. And, and in fact, I mean, as as I um, went through the book, it occurred to me that there are many people um, who experience a broad range of losses, traumatic losses, whether it's the loss of a loved one or the loss of a sense of safety or, uh, whether it's the loss of something that is dear to them and the the way in which you go through the experience and the ways to really heal is so exceptionally helpful you know from from this perspective losses is, is truly a universal phenomenon uh, whenever we experience something in life that uh, fundamentally uh, is a threat to our identity, the way we um, define ourselves and see ourselves uh, in the world, uh, is likely to provoke uh, some or all of the symptoms that I talk about here. Dr. Shulman, where can someone get more information about uh, before and after loss? I mean, we've just barely touched the tip of the iceberg in the information that you share. So where can one go for more? Yeah, the best uh, place is to uh, look on the publisher's website. That's Johns Hopkins University Press. And there is a page uh, devoted to uh, before and after loss uh, describing the book further. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for being willing to share your personal story and, and actually writing this in such a way that it's very readable, very understandable, and, and really quite comforting. Thank you. You're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 uh, Communications. I would love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk, so do send me an email at Pamela, P A M E L A, 
at mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Don't forget to go to the homepage. You can uh, listen to any of the conversations that I've had on demand. And there are also several other platforms that you can listen to MindTalk on. That's all listed at the homepage. You can sign up for the uh, program guide. It's all there. Again, M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And folks, you remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take Thank you.